Good morning, everybody. Great to see you this morning and talk about the Bible a little bit as we continue enjoying each other's company and worshiping God together. <clears throat> before we conclude, <clears throat> before we conclude our series, Boundless, a study of God's Word, um, why don't I just open us in a brief word of prayer? Will you bow your heads and pray with me this morning? Dear God, we thank you that heaven <clears throat> is open as we sang about this morning in our opening song, Lord, and we are so aware of that when we approach your throne of grace, Lord, in the name of Jesus. We're just reminded that you're here with us, <clears throat> journeying through this life <clears throat> with us, Lord, just comforting us, leading us, and guiding us. And God, we are so grateful for your presence and for what you're doing in our lives. Sometimes we forget to pause and just acknowledge the depth of your blessing in our lives, Lord, because life is difficult and challenging. But Lord, we are objects of your grace, and we are so incredibly blessed by you and grateful to know you, Lord, and to be living life with you and with your people. <clears throat> and so, God, this morning, we just ask that you would help us to, um, to understand a little portion of your word and even understand how to study it a little bit better, perhaps, God, how to be nourished and fed, spiritually speaking, God, by the words <clears throat> that you have given us in written form. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm really good at beatboxing, so maybe I should do that to clear my throat. But, um, we're talking about the book of Revelation this morning. <clears throat> no, I drank some water. Well, I'll try it again maybe in a minute here. But uh, we're talking about the book of Revelation this morning. And uh, it's a wonderful book to talk about and to read because it tells us the end of the story, the end of the story of planet Earth. And it turns out that it's a really good ending. God wins in the end. He defeats Satan. There's a new heavens and a new earth for those who, who know him. The purpose of the book, it's written to encourage believers to persevere in faith and faithfulness during difficult times in light of the end of the story, in light of the fact that Jesus comes back, he triumphs over evil and Satan, and he establishes the eternal kingdom of God in all of its fullness, in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, this purpose of the letter must have been uh, particularly encouraging to the book's original recipients, because they were a group of churches in Asia, a province of Rome, the Rome, of Rome at the time, and they were being persecuted by their governing authorities for their faith in Jesus. And so, receiving a letter that encourages them to persevere in faith in light of the glorious, wonderful end of the story must have been helpful for them to hang on and to keep going in their walk with Christ. It's also encouraging to us today, of course, for modern-day believers anywhere in the world who are facing persecution for their faith, as many of them are, but it's also encouraging to any believer anywhere who's going through any difficult time to remember that as dark as the night may seem, 
a glorious dawn is coming for those who know the Lord. <clears throat> it's a, a book that um, Christians have a variety of opinions on in terms of how to interpret the details, some of the details of the book. And so I thought before we begin a study of Revelation this morning, it might be helpful for us to remember that when it comes to this topic of the return of Christ in the book of Revelation, while certainly there are a handful of different opinions about the best way to interpret the book, there's also a lot that we all agree on when it comes to this topic. We all agree that Jesus is coming back. <clears throat> He's coming back bodily, visibly, and suddenly. We believe that nobody knows when exactly he's coming back. We believe that we should all be longing for this return of Christ, living in preparation for it, praying for it, as the early Christians were. <clears throat> and we believe that the ultimate result of the return of Christ will be the judgment of unbelievers and the reward of believers. The structure of the book of Revelation seems to be laid out in chapter 1, verse 19, when Jesus says to John, Write therefore the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. <clears throat> And, and the, the book seems to follow, could be divided into those three categories. The things which John has seen, this revelation uh, of, of Jesus, which he describes. The things which are, namely chapters 2 and 3, the encouragements that Jesus has for the seven churches in Asia. And the things that will happen after these things meaning the future events that are still future. With that basic structure in mind, <clears throat> let's consider, before we begin our own study of the book, a few guidelines for being spiritually formed by the book of Revelation, and I borrowed these from Dr. Walt Russell. The first one is, don't shy away from the book of Revelation because of its distinctive genre. So a large chunk of Revelation is written in type of, type of prophetic literature called apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature contains a lot of symbols and imagery to get its point across. These symbols and imagery were used to protect the original recipients of the letter because this type of literature was written during times of persecution where you wanted to encourage the recipients of the letter, but you also didn't want to get them in trouble if the letter fell into the hands of their enemies, of their persecutors. And so it was written in such a way that the recipients of the letter would understand it, but it might be harder for others to understand it. Well, sometimes when we look at it and we see the symbols and the imagery, we can kind of feel overwhelmed and sort of skip over it and say, you know what, I'm going to read 
the more straightforward, the more practical books, and I'll kind of ignore the book of Revelation. But of course, our basic common sense tells us that God put this book in the Bible for our benefit, so that we would have a full picture and understanding of who he is and how to walk with him. And so we don't want to starve ourselves of any book in the Bible and not the book of Revelation. Remember that this book is ultimately about Jesus Christ and not Satan or the Antichrist. It can be so fascinating to read about topics like the Antichrist or topics like Satan and their involvement in the end times that sometimes we can become so uh, curious about these topics that we miss the focus of the book, the hero of the story, Jesus, the Messiah, who returns at the end to defeat Satan and to establish the kingdom of God. And so it's important to remember that it's about Jesus. Because Revelation is in large part a prophetic word to the church, expect to be exhorted to holy living today by this vivid picture of God's triumph through Christ. So, it is written to the church. And because it's written to the church, we know that God isn't simply writing it to satisfy our sort of intellectual curiosities about the return of Christ, but rather he's writing it so that we would be transformed in the present as we prepare for the events in the book. Because Revelation is about the end of history, <clears throat> it is not meant to be surrealistic or unrealistic, but rather a realistic glimpse of the future in order to inform godly choices today. So we already mentioned that the book uses imagery and symbolism. That doesn't mean that it isn't describing real events, literal events, but it does mean that it's not describing them literally. And so we can take it to be telling us about true events, even if it's not describing them in the literal way that they will occur. Revelation is filled with over 300 allusions <coughs> to the Old Testament. Therefore, it is really intended to function as the capstone of all of Scripture and to complete the picture of what God has been doing in human history. And so because the book of Revelation is functioning as this conclusion to the one unified glorious story that God has been telling from Genesis 1-1, we shouldn't be surprised to find lots of allusions back to the earlier parts of the story that find their completion here in the return of Christ that God had in mind, of course, all along. <clears throat> and... With that in mind, I think it's helpful to ask ourselves, how should we live in light of the fact that we know the end of the story? There's certain movies that I can't watch more than once. Some of these movies <clears throat> are my favorite movies. I really, really like them. But after I've seen them once, I can't imagine myself sitting through the movie a second or third or fourth time. And it's because I know the ending. I know how it goes. And so I can't just sit there and enjoy them because I keep finding myself wanting to scream at the characters and tell them what's about to happen. 
I'm like, no, don't play cards right now and have a good time. The bad guy's about to break in. You need to lock the door. You need to get ready. What are you doing? It just can't enjoy it. But I think it begs the question, how should we live in light of the fact that we know the end of the story of planet Earth? We don't know the details of the twists and turns of our own individual lives along the way, of course. But we do know how the story culminates, what its ending will be. And so how should we change the way we live in the present, knowing the end of the story? And one of the ways that it makes sense to change the way we live right now in light of the fact that we know how the story ends, is to live with a sense of reverence for Jesus. <clears throat> we often appreciate the friendship and the comfort and the warmth that we find in our relationship with Jesus. And thank God for the comfort, the companionship, and the friendship that we have in Jesus. But sometimes, perhaps in part because we shy away from books like the book of Revelation, perhaps we forget that there's a lot more to who Jesus is than simply the kind, gentle, comforting presence who we lean on so often when life gets difficult. Because as comforting and warm and reassuring as Jesus is, he's also God Almighty, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, and he's just. And when we read the end of the story, we read about this creator and sustainer of all things returning to our world in the flesh to judge sinners ultimately and to establish his kingdom of justice on earth forever. And when we ponder his authority, his power, and his might, it causes us to realize that perhaps we're falling short of our worship and understanding of who God is if we don't appreciate who he's revealed to be in the book of Revelation. And so let's look at a passage in Revelation chapter 19. We'll go to Revelation chapter 19. <clears throat> And we'll start reading, we will start reading in verse 11 of chapter 19. And as we do, listen to how we might walk away from Jesus with a bit of reverence when we ponder the end. 
says this, starting in verse 11. It says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So when we jump in here to this description of the return of Christ, we find a description of Jesus coming back, the saints in tow, and it says that his name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It says that he will rule with an iron scepter. It describes his robe being dipped in blood, and that is the blood of his enemies. And it says he comes with justice, with eyes like blazing fire. Up to this point, the book of Revelation in this section, chapters 4 through the end, have have been describing the events that would precede this moment. And when we read this moment about Jesus the King returning, and even when we read on and we eventually get to the day of judgment, you can't really read it without coming away with this sense of respect, with this sense of awe, with this sense of reverence, for who Jesus is. You can't help but perhaps if you've, if you've only been thinking of him as the warm, sweet comforter who he is, you can't help but pause for a moment and go, whoa, who is this, this Jesus, this judge, and this ruler, and this king? Maybe, just maybe, I'll know him better if I remember that my friend and my comforter is also my God and my King who is just and who is good. <clears throat> one, of my, one of my Bible teachers shared a story with me once about uh, a hike that he went on in Kenya. And uh, he was visiting a friend in Kenya when his friend said, why don't you go with my <clears throat> brother-in-law, Jenga, on a hike to the top of Mount Kenya. And my professor said, sure, that sounds great. <clears throat> so he spent the whole next day climbing Mount Kenya with Jenga. And he had a blast, he said, until that night as they started making their camp for the evening. <clears throat> he said as he was settling in that evening and night was falling, he said it crossed his mind that he, he thought to himself, wait a second. Who is this guy? He's like, we hiked all day up Mount Kenya 
and I didn't see a single trail. We could be lost for all I know. We're in the wilderness on the side of a mountain, and there's, there's no signs or directions whatsoever. If we were lost, would he even tell me? What did I get myself into? He said the next day, the next day he was kind of still worried, you know, and couldn't get this thought off of his mind. <clears throat> As they broke camp and they continued hiking, eventually he said they ran out of water. And so he said, uh, uh, Jenga told him, stay here, I'll be back. And Jenga left. And a little while later, he came back and he said, here, here's water. And he said, as he like took the water and drank it, he was thinking to himself, is this even safe to drink? Where did he get this? They continue hiking and climbing this, uh, this enormous mountain until finally they came to like a rest stop area where there were other, other people. And they approached a table that was there full of Kenyans talking amongst themselves. But as soon as they looked over and saw him and uh, Jenga there, they all fell silent. And they immediately parted and made room for them to sit down. Then they sat down and he said that uh, no one at the table spoke except for Jenga and whoever Jenga would talk with. And my professor was like, wow, that's really weird. So, so when they got up to leave and they continued hiking, he kind of asked him about it. He was like, hey, what was going on back there? You know, why was everyone seem to be treating you with so much respect at that rest stop? And he said Jenga kind of tried to blow it off like it was nothing and, and just, just keep hiking. But my professor said, he was like, hey, come on, man. He's like, I, I'm entrusting my life to you out here. You got to tell me, who are you? What was going on back there? And so reluctantly, he said that Jenga explained to him that Jenga is the top mountaineer in all of Kenya and probably in all of Africa. He told him that uh, the, the British military comes and he teaches them mountaineering on Mount Kenya. <clears throat> and that when someone gets lost on Mount Kenya, he leads the search party to go find them. And my professor was like, I suddenly realized I was with the man. He was like, this is the guy I want leading me to the top of Mount Kenya. He described how he went from these feelings of doubt and worry and fear to suddenly looking at his partner with this newfound sense of respect and awe. And I think, though it's simply an illustration, that when we read the book of Revelation, and particularly the return of Christ, we can't help but sort of have a switch in our own understanding of who Jesus is. We can't help but have this newfound sense of respect and reverence that the God who is so humble and gentle and encouraging to us is also the king of the world who is just and who is good and who is coming back to bring the kingdom of God. And when we think about that, Maybe we, maybe we don't throw his name around as casually as we do when we don't meditate on his authority. Maybe we even think twice about that old habit of, of using his name as a curse word, perhaps. 
maybe when we start to have this sense of reverence for God's power and authority, maybe we don't get quite so embarrassed when someone brings them up in conversation outside of a church setting. Like, hey, man, save it for church. Maybe we start to realize, wow, you're talking about God. Maybe we don't just go to him when we are looking for comfort. Maybe we try to break the habit of simply seeking him out as a shoulder to cry on, and we start cultivating an attitude of reverent worship when we need comfort and when we don't need comfort because he's worthy of our respect and our awe. And as we do that, as we ponder the day of Jesus' return and let that reverence for him grow in our hearts, we shouldn't be surprised to find ourselves preparing more and more for the day when Christ returns. We're really good at preparing for things in life that are a lot less important than the return of Christ. My hunch is that this room is full of people who go through life pretty well prepared. Perhaps you prepared really well for your schooling. You knew what school you wanted to go to to do the career you wanted to do, so you started young and you worked hard and you got just to the right school that got you just to the right school, and it worked out well. Perhaps you even prepared fairly well for your marriage. You waited until you met a decent person. You waited to be intimate until you were married. You got some good counseling to set you up well, because you knew that would be important to lay a foundation. And maybe you're enjoying a decent marriage. Maybe you prepared fairly well for the most important parts of life. But when we read about the return of Christ, we can't help but acknowledge that if we prepare well for all the most important parts of life, our job, our marriage, our schooling, but we don't prepare well for the day of Jesus' return, who cares? Who cares how well we prepared for a decent marriage if in our preparations and in our marriage we were not concerned with the return of Christ? Who cares? how dedicated we were to getting into a school and landing a great career if we did not allow our pursuit of that schooling and that career to be shaped and formed with the knowledge that one day Jesus was coming back and that only the actions and preparations that were done in honor of him would matter at all. Who cares? when the world changes in a second, when there's a new king on the throne 
and where what was once important to us, if it isn't important to him, who cares? I did an experiment once. I don't recall what started it or why, but I sat down to pray, and um, just for a few minutes, I decided to imagine that Jesus was coming back right now while I'm praying. That the end of history as I knew it and the beginning of a whole new type of world was starting just like that. And I focused and I thought about it and then I asked myself, how do you feel, Luke? And I felt a lot of regret. I instantly reassessed my life. I reassessed something that was a huge concern to me that I was really worried about. And I just thought, oh, I wish I hadn't have been so concerned. Who cares? That's meaningless what they think about me in that situation. I thought about my godly habits, generosity, prayer, service, things that I enjoy, but that I could have been so much more devoted to in light of the fact that the king of generosity and goodness and communion with God was bursting in. And that experience, maybe, I don't know, maybe it was five minutes of just imagining the return of Christ. It had this incredibly cleansing effect on me. And it made me want to start living and preparing more right now for the end of the story. And stop spending less time dedicating my strength and hours and concerns to meaningless worries, pursuits, and pleasures. Because if we believe that Jesus is coming back, that his return ultimately results in the day of judgment, well, then we want to allow that day to to change our attitude in the present. We want to be preparing for the kingdom of Christ in the way we do our work, in the way we make our plans, in the way we converse with each other so that we can be as prepared as possible for the day when Jesus returns. One of my, one of my friends tried to, tried to tell me about a good investment once. I don't know if you've ever had a friend who just comes to you and they're convinced that they found the next big investment. And uh, if you have a friend who's, who's like that and they come to you and they, they tell you, hey, you got to invest in this, you know, stock or this or whatever. If you're a good friend like me, then, uh, you know, you listen to them. You go, uh-huh. Uh, oh, no way. That's cool, man. But in my case, you know, he came to me, told me about this investment that he had that was so, so great and the next big thing. And I just sort of listened. I didn't take him seriously, though. You know, I just listened. And I listened to him every time he'd bring it up. Until one day, we went to a gathering of friends and family, and he showed up, and guess what he wanted to talk about? this exciting investment opportunity that he had discovered, that's when I got a little annoyed. 
that's when I kind of hung my head in shame and thought, oh my gosh, really? I don't mind if you tell me about it, but we're trying to have a good time and hang out. Can you shut up about this investment that you discovered? Well, him and I often, uh, <clears throat> we often refer back to that day where I visibly hung my head in shame of my friend. Because in about, well, I, I, I was within a year's time, he just so happened to have picked a really good investment. <laughs> he just so happened to show me his portfolio, which had gone from low thousands to nearly half a million dollars. And we laugh about that moment where I hung my head in shame because I obviously now wish that I had been a little bit more curious <laughs> than I was when he shared the investment with me. When I was reading about the return of Christ here, it couldn't help but uh, cross my mind. You know, what if I had? What if I had somehow gone all in on this investment? And what if right now I was a multi, multi-millionaire? I often think that'd be pretty nice. But as I was thinking about this passage in the return of Christ, I couldn't help but ask myself, if that money, Luke, as wonderful as it would be, somehow distracted you from the incredible importance of preparing each day in every endeavor for the return of Christ, then it would have been an awful, awful thing. Because who cares? Who cares if you're rich? Who cares if, if all your earthly dreams come true if you didn't prepare for them in a way that honors and glorifies the one who will return and who will clarify what really mattered in life and what really didn't, who will reward his saints for their faithful service for all eternity and who will ultimately condemn those who do not accept his grace. Let's pray. Dear God, we are so grateful for you, as we said in the beginning. So grateful for you, God, just because of your presence with us, Lord, of the fact that we can call out to you. We can sing to you, Lord, when life is going well. And we can beg you for help, Lord, when it feels like we're drowning. And Lord, you're there with us through it all. You've promised to never leave us or forsake us. And God, the reason we gather together on mornings like this is to encourage each other to live lives worthy of the salvation that you have given us, to not waste hours and moments and months, but, Lord, as much as possible, with your help, to be continually living in ways that please and honor you, in ways that encourage, uplift, and bless, and not, Lord, be distracted by the ever distracting calls of our selfish, 
old selves. And so, God, we thank you for this encouragement and reminder today from your word. And we just ask that you would be honored as we rise to sing and worship you for the rest of our service. In Jesus' name, amen.